Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer for Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture. And we are a proud member of the Radio Labor Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Rauschwe to discuss his new book, Why the New Deal Matters, which provides a look at how the New Deal fundamentally changed American life and why it remains relevant today. Dr. Rauschway is a distinguished professor of history at the University of California, Davis, and has written six books of US history and a novel. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Atlantic Time Magazine, and other publications. He holds a PhD from Stanford, an MA from Oxford, and a bachelor's degree from Cornell. Dr. Rauschway, thank you so much for joining me. It's my pleasure, thank you. So I want to begin, why did you want to write a book about the New Deal? Well, this I've written a, a few other books about the New Deal, and this, this one afforded me the opportunity to write for general readers where they might see and how they might appreciate the impact of the New Deal in our lives today. I think it's useful to tell people how ever-present the New Deal is still in American life, how really, you know, it doesn't matter where you look, you just need to be told what you're looking at so that you can see the New Deal in action in the United States today. And, and therefore, it's good to know how much we depend on it, even though I think we've somewhat neglected the spirit on which the New Deal relied, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. So, so could you create a scene setter of what the world looked like as Roosevelt came into office in 1933? Sure. So Franklin Roosevelt was elected president in November 1932. He would be inaugurated March 4th, 1933. That was the last time a president was inaugurated on March 4th of the 20th Amendment. It was finally ratified during the period between the election and the inauguration. So Roosevelt's second term would begin on January 20th, 1937. So this is the depth of the Great Depression already. By the time Roosevelt's elected, you've had almost four solid years, economic contraction and general social catastrophe resulting from that during the presidency of Herbert Hoover. By the time Roosevelt's running for president in 1932, unemployment is getting up in the direction of 25%, it might not quite reach that. You know, our, our figures are all estimated in retrospective, but that's a good, good estimate. And moreover, the vast majority of those people who are employed are underemployed because employers are trying to share work around so that people still can have jobs and stuff like that in the face of this catastrophe. Agricultural commodity prices have plummeted. So farmers and people who work on farms, which represents anywhere between, you know, sort of one fifth and one third of the country are suffering. All of these people who are unemployed, underemployed, unable to derive incomes from farming are therefore unable to pay their mortgages. That puts stresses on the banking system. There have been waves of bank failures right the way through the Hoover presidency. And the worst one begins just a little bit before the November 1932 election and will continue through the, the months afterwards until Roosevelt takes office on March 4th, 1933. So you have basically every element of the United States economy is broken at this point in 1932. And you can add to that that this is a global uh, 
catastrophe, which has seen the rise of right-wing parties throughout the world and particularly in Europe. And of course, most notably in Germany where Adolf Hitler will become chancellor during this period between the election and inauguration as well in January of 1933, which is uh, something that gives great alarm to Franklin Roosevelt uh, as he's preparing for his presidency. So it's, it's quite the mess everywhere you look. And it comes on the back of Hoover administration with the Treasury Secretary Mellon, who was the Treasury Secretary for three presidents. And his whole economic understanding was, let's liquidate everything. The, the way to avoid the deflation is just pretty much throw humans on the trash heap of history. And Roosevelt came in with this idea of the New Deal. And so what is the New Deal? Well, as you suggest, it's the antithesis of the previous Republican administration, right? Hoover, even without Mellon, was what you're describing as a liquidationist. He was somebody who believed that the only way to meet the crisis was to let it work itself out, to let the banks that had made bad loans go defunct, to let all of that capital sort of you know, just sort of lie fallow or those, 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 that money vanish until prices got so low that it was, you know, once again, a free market opportunity for people to lend and to buy, and then the economy would turn around on its own. So Hoover was very much opposed to intervention and particularly to aid to the unemployed, but he also didn't want to intervene in the collapsing financial system. As I say, he was very much a hands-off president. As the great New Deal historian William Luchtenberg says, he was not passive. He was active in opposing the use of the federal government to meet the crisis of the depression. So if you have that in your mind, then you know the New Deal is the complete opposite of all of that, right? It is to use the weight of the federal government to mobilize people to meet the crisis of the depression, to stabilize the banking system, to stabilize the United States dollar, to push up agricultural prices, so agricultural commodity prices so that farmers can get a good income to push up wages and to you know, increase, improve working conditions so that uh, wage workers can afford to buy things. This sort of broad-based effort to increase purchasing power would increase aggregate demand and would therefore get the economy moving again. So as I say, it was the complete opposite of the uh, previous administration's approach. And could you talk a little bit about the government jobs program that was being implemented for the first time in pretty much U.S. history? So with the CCC and then eventually the WPA. Right. Well, the, the need of public employment was something that Roosevelt particularly well, was very keen on because not, so, not just for the purchasing power reasons that I just mentioned, but also because he wanted to restore Americans' faith in the US government to promote the idea among the people who he saw getting increasingly skeptical of democracy, that democracy could still work, right? And so this is something he said repeatedly that the public works programs were specifically meant to address this issue. If you employ someone directly, right, you create an intimate relationship between them and their, their government. So you therefore you know, show them that as they work for the government, so the government works for them. So with that idea in mind, yes, the CCC in particular, which was one of the first public works programs, the Civilian Conservation Corps, was specifically designed to relieve the disaffection of young American men. So it was aimed at uh, young single men who would be employed on public 
works in parks, whether state or national, generally doing you know, soil conservation or, or roadworks improvements or anything or anything to basically uh, you know, improve public parks and, 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 and wilderness, including planting trees particularly, which was an idea that was near to Roosevelt's heart, and therefore to give those potentially socially disaffected folks a, a, a reason, again, to believe in society. And this was aimed particularly at the bonus marchers from 1932, who Roosevelt was very worried were people who would, you know, potentially support a fascist movement or something like that, if they didn't have meaningful employment and a reason to believe in, in the United States government. And the, the other public works programs are the same. You know, they, they, they experiment with various ways of doing things. One of the first things they try to do is push money through existing state bureaus. And that's somewhat effective, but it's less effective than it could be because a lot of that money then goes to other places than the pockets of workers. Eventually, they light on direct employment by the federal government. This is Harry Hopkins's idea that they first try this out in the, in the fall of 1933. That's a temporary program that goes through the spring of 1934. And then they kind of resume that in 1935 with the more permanent uh, Works Progress Administration, which lasts for eight years. And it employs Americans in all walks of life, people mostly doing road work by and large, but certainly people know, I think, about the theater programs, about the arts programs, about the programs for canning food and for sewing and providing aid to the poor in, in that way. It's a, it's a broad-based way to put millions of Americans to work. And it's such an opposite of the last 40 years that I've lived in within this Reagan arena that is coming to an end. And the question is, what's going to be built after it? But a lot of people in hindsight can say, well, this program worked, that program didn't. But what I understand is that Roosevelt and his team just realized they had to do something. And they were experimenting a lot of the time, trying to figure out what was working and what was not. And then when things would work, they would scale it up and, and grow it from, from that side. Could you talk a little bit about maybe their, their internal policy discussions between you know, the Harold Ickes and, and the Roosevelt and the Harry Hopkins and Francis Perkins and other folks on the cabinet? Sure. I mean, Roosevelt inherited, Roosevelt was brought up within a Democratic Party that was ideologically quite diverse, right? So most notably along the lines of racial justice, right? The Southern Democrats were the creatures of Jim Crow. They were inclined, especially in the depth of the Depression, to support New Deal policies. But as the economy recovered through Roosevelt's first term, they became more and more independent and eventually opposed uh, New Deal measures because the more public employment there was, the more public employment that improved the conditions of employment, the more of a threat the New Deal posed to Jim Crow because it showed Black workers they could get jobs where they would be less discriminated against, if not not discriminated against, and that they might move to other parts of the country where they could get uh, employment on a Works Progress Administration job or a Public Works Administration job. The federal employment programs in the New Deal were credited by the, uh, the Urban League, which providing the first mass opportunities for white-collar employment for Black Americans. So that created a split within the administration, and there was a long-standing difficulty between people like those you mentioned, Harold Ickes, who had been uh, head of the NAACP, or Harry Hopkins, who were much more supportive of the idea of 
anti-discrimination in hiring and some of the more Southern elements of the New Deal. So that's one of the strains, that's one of the cleavages, let's say, within the Democratic Party is the national wing of the party, which is more liberal, is particularly on racial issues, and will ultimately, in 1939, lead to the establishment of the civil rights section in the Justice Department, right? So the national party is moving in the direction of civil rights. The Southern Democratic Party is not. And so that, that creates one of the big splits in the New Deal. Another one is between, which is much less enduring, is between sort of more fiscal conservatives and more Keynesians or proto-Keynesians within the New Deal. Roosevelt has some budget balancers in his administration in the first weeks and some devotees of the gold standard, uh, like his budget director, Lewis Douglas. And those will lose the argument repeatedly to the likes of Wallace, Hopkins, Perkins, and Ickes, who take the view that if you increase employment and you increase national income, then eventually the budget will balance itself. So there, there are some disputes within the administration along those two sets of lines. And in both cases, the, the administration ultimately moves in the more liberal direction, but, but there are internal disputes like those. Can you talk a little bit about the Public Works Administration, which also was huge on infrastructure and built some of our most iconic public works projects in the history of this country? Yeah, the Public Works Administration is the first major public works program of the New Deal. It's part of the National Industrial Recovery Act of the, in 1933, so it's generally lumped in with the earliest New Deal legislation. It comes under the jurisdiction of the Department of the Interior, and so Harold Ickes, the progressive Republican, who's one of a number of Republicans or former Republicans in Roosevelt's first cabinet, is in charge of it. And as you say, it's mostly in charge of big capital intensive public works. So there are three or so billion dollars behind it from the start. In those days, that's, that's big money. And it's mostly aimed at those things like bridges and dams and, and, and such like. So on the one hand, as you say, it ultimately builds some of the you know, most iconic bits of infrastructure. You know, you'd look at things like uh, the now LaGuardia Airport was then New York Municipal or the, the uh, Triborough Bridge or the bits of the Bay Bridge. And you know, that, that's one of the things that's characteristic of the New Deal is, you know, bits and pieces of lots of things are built by bits and pieces of lots of agencies. It's not really this project belongs to that agency. But anyway, it's a big project. It styles itself more as a sort of a bank because it will sort of make matching grants to states or municipalities and then they will you know, put together a funding package for a giant public work and then they will hire you know low bid contractors and you know they, they'll, they'll work in, in that way rather than directly employ people the way Hopkins's WPA does. That's kind of you know overstating its hands-offness. The PWA has very clear wages and hours and working conditions requirements. It is also the home of some of the anti-racial discrimination policies that are more effective in the New Deal. So it is a bit more hands-on than it likes to describe itself. But as you say, it's responsible for mass improvements, including contributing to the dams of the TVA and those built elsewhere in the country. So it's it's one of the major New Deal agencies. It takes a little while to get started, as you'd expect of something that builds big public works, which is one of the reasons that those other programs that I mentioned for direct federal employment are necessary. And it, tens of thousands of schools, hospitals, went to airports. Every county in the country was touched by 
the different types of investments? Well, it's certainly true that, you know, the New Deal had public works everywhere. I mean, again, I think people just need to know where to look to sort of see it. And that is one of the reasons for its, you know, immense popularity. Don't forget, Roosevelt won a re-election in 1936 by generally speaking, the largest margin since James Monroe effectively ran unopposed, right? So it's a massive, massive, massively popular program. And that's on top of having gained seats in the off-year election of 1934, right? So it's a very popular program because it's everywhere. I, I would characterize it less as patronage than more as, I guess, modern pork barrel, right? I mean, if, you, if you're doing something in someone's backyard, that's always popular. The, particularly the PWA and the WPA were very sensitive to charges of corruption and had these FBI-backed, you know, anti-self-dealing units that were very hardcore and sort of watching out for buddy-buddy spending. So Roosevelt died in 1944, the beginning of his fourth term. And during that time, he, he gave a State of the Union address that laid out a second Bill of Rights known as the Economic Bill of Rights. There was also this consideration of the four freedoms that we were fighting World War II to preserve freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Could you just kind of take me through what were the plans of post-war America if Roosevelt had lived? And, and how was the New Deal supposed to continue on? Yeah, when Roosevelt died in April of 1945, it was just a few weeks shy of VE Day. So, you know, he almost saw the war in Europe through to completion. And I think you're absolutely correct to suggest that there's a fundamental link, certainly in Franklin Roosevelt's White House, if not everywhere, between the New Deal and the war. And I think if you look at Roosevelt's decision to run for the unprecedented third term, let alone the fourth term, it was based on his belief that he was the best person to protect the New Deal into the war mobilization years. And the way the war was fought was very much on a New Deal basis. In a lot of respects, the federal government was, of course, you know, intimately involved in mobilizing and allocating resources for the war effort, actually owned the vast majority of critical war factory infrastructure and directed those parts of it that it didn't own. So it's almost like the New Deal on steroids, that it amounts to the public works program that the New Deal should have been in terms of its scale. I mean, just parenthetically, we should say one of the things that people will say, and I wish they'd stop, is, oh, well, it was the war, not the New Deal that got the country out of the Depression. I mean, there's two things you have to point out. Number one, the economy was growing very rapidly already during the New Deal, and the only reason it hadn't completely recovered is that it was in such a deep hole owing to the scale of the Depression. Number two, if you say it was the war, not the New Deal that got the country out of the Depression, all you are saying is that the New Deal should have been bigger sooner, because if spending money to hire people to build tanks and airplanes is a sufficient anti-depression measure, then clearly spending that same amount of money to employ the same number of people to build roads, bridges, schools, etc., would also have worked sooner. So this is one of those very foolish things that people will nevertheless say uh, that I wish people would stop. So parenthetically, I will note that that is one way in which the war sort of represents the continuation of the New Deal. But yes, you're also right that Roosevelt brought fundamentally New Deal style ideas and ideals to the war effort and to post-war planning. So you mentioned the Four Freedom speech, that's January 1941, that's even before therefore the United States has entered the war. 
but he's talking about should we begin to aid the allies? He's trying to get the Lend-Lease legislation through Congress at that point. These are the things we'd be fighting for. And as you say, that is for a world with freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, that's a very New Dealy type idea, and freedom from fear. He says in that speech that human rights everywhere are the fundamental security right for the world that we'd be looking at. So he really is thinking about uh, a new deal for the world. And in many respects, his diplomacy with his, the fellow allied nations attempts to lay the groundwork for that, particularly when countries sign on to Lend-Lease agreements to get materiel from the United States. They have to agree to certain principles for the post-war world. These are borne out in the various United Nations conferences that take place in 1944 and 1945, again, planning for the post-war world. Now, you say, what would have happened had Roosevelt lived? You know, this is obviously a very difficult question to answer. Part of the problem is, of course, that by early 1945, the Soviets were already not so keen on some of those New Deal-style plans for the world. Roosevelt had to make certain concessions to Stalin at the Yalta Conference in February of 45, and I think... It's clear that, that Roosevelt believed that he could somehow finesse this, because why not? He had finessed everything else for 12 years, including, as we already mentioned, the Jim Crow elements of his own party, together with his promotion of civil rights and things like that. If he could tread that balance, surely he could tread some kind of international balance. But we'll never know how he thought he could have solved those problems. Any number of historians have written about them. In the event, of course, it fell to Harry Truman, who was underinformed uh, about Roosevelt's post-war plans and also did not possess the same level of finesse. So we, we don't know. Yeah, and much of his cabinet was purged. There's a great book by Elliot Roosevelt, Roosevelt's son, so alarmed by the purging of the Henry Wallace faction and a lot of the alliances and plans and policies that were so successful for the previous, I guess, 13, 14 years. So the New Statesman tweeted out that you wrote, the defense of American democracy requires permanent material gains for voters. Now, this seems pretty obvious, I think, to you and me, yet we've been in this post-New Deal since 1945, and almost all the schools, the economists, public policy departments, political science, there's just so many people who are arguing against this, including an entire political class that seems to be reticent on ensuring that the government actually provides for the people. I, this is a very broad question, but why is this? Something that is so clearly successful and so popular, why is there this overarching elite oligarchical push against it? Well, I mean, I would say not only, you know, is what I said, I suppose in theory obvious, it used to be conservative to say that, right? I mean, that was the basis for the politics of Theodore Roosevelt and for Otto von Bismarck, you know, and for Winston Churchill, not at all what we would call left-wing figures, right, in any sort of measure, but the general idea that you need to make life at least somewhat less miserable for the vast majority of people is how you have a sustainable society, right? So why don't we understand that anymore? <laughs> and why don't we understand conservatism that way anymore? That is a huge question. I think that a lot of it owes to, in a perverse way, let's say a lot of it owes to the success of the New Deal, right? I think that a lot of New Deal institutions and social democratic institutions in Western Europe 
persisted through the decades after the war, provided benefits quietly, even during conservative administrations or conservative governments in the decades after the war. And so people did have that degree of security that Franklin Roosevelt said that they ought to have and had a right to have, even while governments were talking against that general concept. And so we've been spending down the social capital of the New Deal over the decades since by allowing these institutions to quietly persist and keep people going. At some point, though, and maybe we've already reached that point, we're going to have to sort of reinvest uh, in those institutions so that they work for, you know, current and future generations as well as previous ones. And we can no longer simply ride them out and pretend that we're living in a laissez-faire country when in fact we live in, in no such place, right? I, and I think we've been able to kind of indulge ourselves in the idea that, you know, we don't need government influence because a certain number of voters in this country have taken it for granted and no longer see, you know, social security, pensions, or Medicare, or any of the legacies of the New Deal through the Great Society, right, as being, you know, somehow important government resources that are in need of renewal, right, they see them as kind of established things. And um, the idea that the New Deal requires reinvestment and extension is something that, uh, you know, may just now be dawning on us again, I hope not too late. So, Dr. Rashway, thank you very much for your book, Why the New Deal Matters. Everyone should go out and get it and learn more about the New Deal and how we can bring it back and revive it in 21st century. So thank you so much for your time. Great. Thanks for talking to me and take care.